Open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Take out that pew Bible again. If you don't have a Bible with you, open it up to page 1240. 1240 will take you to Revelation chapter 20. This summer, we conducted our third preaching workshop, called it a preaching lab. We invited a number of young men to come and, and be, meet with Pastor Vince and I on Monday nights. We taught them basically how to put together a sermon, and then we sent them home to put together their own sermons and then bring them back and preach them there at the preaching lab in front of all of their peers and then submit themselves to a public evaluation of their preaching. And if that wasn't bad enough, we also filmed them and then handed them as they walked out the door a DVD of their preaching and asked them to go home and watch it and self-evaluate. There is nothing quite that compares to seeing yourself on film. It is a very, very painful experience. Most people, you know, don't like the, even the sound of their own voice. They hear their voice recorded and they say, is that me? Do I really sound like that? Yeah, actually, you really do. <laughs> so when you add the dynamic, not just of the voice recording, but you add a video component as well and all of the annoying mannerisms stand out and all of the just the funny, quirky things that you and I do, they're all right there on film and we make them review that. I tell them to watch it in fast speed because that'll accentuate all of the quirky mannerisms. You'll see yourself, you know, scratch your ear 500 times in rapid succession or something like that. And so the whole process of self-evaluation is a very painful process. It really is. Nobody likes self-evaluation. But the text before us this morning is really a text that promotes self-evaluation. There's just no way around it. We have come to the sixth event, six of seven in the series called Things to Come. And this sixth event is the rejection of the rule of Christ, the rejection of his rule over the earth. The fifth event was the reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. This now moves into the sixth event, the rejection of his rule. And in the process of looking at this rejection together this morning, I was thinking about how do we do this so that it's not merely an academic exercise. And the more I thought about this chapter and what it has to say to us, the more convicted I became of the depth of the depravity of my own heart, really. As I began to see people who would reject the reign of Messiah over them and asked myself, what is it that would, that would cause people to do that? I began to look into my own heart and see, you know what? The seeds for all of this lie within me as well. And because they lie within me, beloved, they lie within you. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to hold up a mirror through this text. 
Yes, we will learn some academic things, some, some things of systematic theology. It will fill in some of the blank spaces, perhaps, that you have with regard to future events. And I want to do that. We should know these things. The Lord wants us to know these things. But I don't want it to remain just merely up here in the academic. I want it to get down here. I want all of us to think about what we're to study here this morning together and in it to evaluate our own heart and by looking at these sobering truths regarding sin and salvation, I want us to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ because that's our only hope. That is our only hope in all this wickedness. So this text before us this morning in Revelation chapter 20. Let me just begin the reading at verse 7 for you. Three truths, three sobering truths regarding sin and salvation. Beginning in verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Stop right there. This is a sobering picture for us. A sobering reality here that we are rebels by nature. We are rebels by nature. What we see in them, beloved, is in us. It's in us too. Let's set a context here for us a little bit. When Christ returns at the end of tribulation to judge His enemies and establish His great 1,000-year millennial kingdom, we're told that He casts Antichrist and His false prophet into the lake of fire the end of chapter 19 and verse 20. And then we are told in chapter 20 and verse 3, Satan himself is bound for a thousand years, cast into the prison, the supermax prison called the abyss. And there it says he remains for 1,000 years. And after these things, the end of verse 3, he must be released for a short time. He must be released. This is a very interesting statement. He must be released. It's called a divine imperative. That is that there is something in the, in the mind of God that makes it a necessity that Satan himself is released from this prison. And you might ask yourself, why? I mean, Lord, you came, you established your kingdom, and you, and you took the deceiver 
the, the, the one who is the enemy of our souls and you, and you cast him into prison and you bound him and you sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations. Lord, that's what we are hoping for. That's what we want. Why would you let him out? He must be released, it says. Why in the world, in the sovereign plan of God, would this arch fiend be given parole? Why in the world would God parole him? And the answer, beloved, is we don't know. We don't know for sure. God has not chosen to reveal his mind to us on these matters. We can do a little bit of speculation, sanctified speculation, I suspect. And doing that, it seems that God intends at least as part of his reasoning, that he wants to test humanity one last time. That God must release him for a short time because God wants to establish a test. He, he wants to test humanity one more time. There's been a thousand years of perfect living conditions. One thousand years of peace, prosperity, no warfare, no poverty, no famine, no plagues, sickness eliminated, disease eliminated, life expectancy extension extended and up to and approaching most likely the thousand years. Christ himself ruling on the throne, holiness as common as a fry pan throughout the world, all the nations coming to worship at least annually at the temple of Christ where he sits on the throne, a more perfect world could hardly be conceived. So perhaps what God wants is to show once and for all, to answer the question, what is the human heart really like? Given these kind of perfect conditions, what will man do when faced with the opportunity to rebel? How will people respond? This test answers a number of questions. Questions such as, is unbelief the product of growing up among sinners? Is that why people don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is because of the environment in which they've grown up? They've grown up in an ungodly family with people who, who do not know and love Jesus Christ and therefore there's no way for them to know and love Jesus Christ. Is that the answer? Or is unbelief the product of poverty? Is it the product of ignorance? Is it the product of injustice? Is it the product of war? Is that why people refuse the God of the universe? Because of all of these maladies? Is unbelief the result of satanic deception? Is that why people refuse to believe? Because Satan has somehow deceived them. The devil made them do it. They cannot believe because of what Satan has done. Or maybe flipping the question and asking it the other way. Will growing up in a God-fearing environment ensure that people believe? Will being raised in a, in a Christian home among devout parents, being given a Christian education all the way up through and including college, will that ensure belief? Coming to Sunday school, participating in Awana, 
Bible studies at home, scripture reading, prayer, coming to church every time the doors are open. Will these things guarantee faith? How deep? How deep is your rebellion? How deep is your rebellious nature? How foul is your soul without Christ? How enslaved to the blackness of your own heart? Are you really without Christ? This text answers that question. Look again. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for a war and the number of them, pay attention here, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Not just a few. Not just a few reject the reign of Messiah over them. Like the sand of the seashore, multitudes on multitudes. Who are these people? Who are these people who reject Messiah? They're called the nations here. Do you see it? Verse 8 will come out to deceive the nations. Ta ethne in the Greek. It's, it's speaking of Gentiles. The Gentile nations all across this globe. Now you have to remember back with me a, a couple of weeks. You know, eschatology builds on itself. It's like mathematics. You can't just learn the lesson for the quiz and then forget it and go to the next concept because concept builds on concept. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about who will populate Messiah's kingdom. Do you remember that? And we said there were a number of different groups populating Messiah's kingdom, but there were two groups in particular that are important for this. That is, there are believing Gentiles and there are believing Jews who go into Messiah's kingdom in natural bodies like unto yours and mine. Gentiles who have withstand or withstood the sheep and the goat judgment of Matthew chapter 25, they enter into Messiah's kingdom Jews who have been evaluated by Christ, Ezekiel chapter 20, they have passed under the shepherd's rod. They go into Messiah's kingdom in bodies, natural bodies like unto yours and mine. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, they are welcomed into Messiah's kingdom. Isaiah chapter 65 We looked at that a couple of weeks ago as well, verses 18 through 25, and it speaks there of the children that will be born to these believing peoples. Who will rebel against Messiah's rule? It will be the children and the grandchildren of believers. And I can't think of anything more sobering than that. For one thousand years they will have seen and witnessed with their own eyes messiah in all of his glory they will have been required to come to worship according to zechariah chapter 14 at least once per year or there will be penalties imposed upon them it says that rain will be withheld from their lands they will come and they will worship No more war, no more poverty, no more sickness, no more disease. Death becomes rare. Messiah on his throne, all of his glory, all of his benefits, all of his blessings poured out across this earth. And yet, 
And yet, children and grandchildren growing up in this near-perfect environment, given opportunity, turn on him and would seek to overthrow him. Look at it again. Satan goes out to deceive the nations. He goes to the four corners of the earth. That is, that he moves across this globe to gather together for the great war, the number, and the number is like the sand of the sea. Satan has no trouble gathering an army at the end. No trouble pulling together this vast conspiracy. Beloved, the implications of this are huge. They are huge. Because what this speaks about is the depth of human sin. It talks to me, it speaks to me and tells me we are so wicked within our own hearts that even in the face of overwhelming evidence for the reality of Messiah, we would turn him down. And not only would we turn him down, we would kill him if we could. It also says to me that my children and my grandchildren have within them the same vile passions, the same propensity to rebellion, the same depth of depravity, the same need for the grace of God to save them. We're rebels by nature. Rebels by nature. John sees in this vision, Gog and Magog, verse 8, the ancient enemies of Israel. Why, is he, why are they mentioned here? Is this a reference somehow back to Ezekiel 38, 39? The answer is no, no. I believe what he is doing here is he's mentioning Gog and Magog, these ancient enemies of Israel, and he's doing it to just speak symbolically with regard to all the nations that are organized against Messiah. They are like unto Gog and Magog. We speak of a person's Waterloo, right? So-and-so has had their Waterloo. That refers to a historic battle occurred in 1815 in Waterloo, Belgium, where Napoleon was defeated by the Duke of Wellington. And it brought about his end. And so we use that historic event and we speak of it as a person's Waterloo. I think the same thing is going on here. When he speaks of Gog and Magog, I think what John is doing is he is calling people's attention back to the great rebellion that was near the midpoint of the tribulation in which Gog and Magog and the nations with them did come to try to crush Messiah and his kingdom. And he uses that symbolically to speak about this final rebellion. It's like unto the battle with Gog and Magog. Verse 9, And they came up onto the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day, night, forever. And ever. The beloved city, Jerusalem, Messiah's capital, capital of his kingdom, Isaiah chapter 2 tells us. It is there that the enemies come together 
in this final revolt. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to suppose that the leadership of Messiah's kingdom, those glorified saints and glorified bodies like unto you, you and I, when we receive that glorified body, who are operating in Messiah's kingdom in administrative capacity, that we would somehow resist the rebellion. That is logical to me. But evidently, we cannot hold it back. Evidently, the depth of the wickedness is so great that righteousness cannot hold it back. And so the nations gather together. Look what it says. They come up onto the broad plain of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The idea is that they are closing in like the jaws of a vice on the capital city of Jerusalem. We will not have this man rule over us. They're going to overthrow him. They're going to dethrone God. Well, in the providence of God, he gathers them all there on the broad plain of the earth. Beloved, it is the perfect killing zone. He has drawn them into the trap. He has fleshed out all the subtle and hidden rebellion of their hearts. It has been drawn to the surface. He has used Satan himself to entice and deceive and to draw out those who are fundamentally at rebellion with God. And he has gathered them together into one large killing box. And there they are incinerated in a moment in time. Fire came down from heaven, it says, verse 9, and devoured them. What does God think of this rebellion? He gathers them all together. And in one moment of time, they're incinerated, destroyed in a heavenly fireball. And Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, verse 10, where the beast and the false prophet also are. There in this place called the lake of fire, prepared originally for the devil and his angels, according to Matthew 25 and verse 41, a place of eternal torment day and night forever and ever, Antichrist, false prophet, Satan, and by extension all of his demonic angels are cast to be tormented forever and ever. Beloved, this is not a place of annihilation. There are some who would like us to believe that God deals with the wicked by snuffing them out and they cease to exist, but the text could not be more clear that that is not what happens. We are not annihilated. The unbeliever is not extinguished. The unbeliever lives on in eternal torment. Day and night, forever and ever. Notice it also says that the beast and the false prophet, that is the Antichrist and the false prophet, present tense verb, verse 10, are also, after 1,000 years, they are still there. We are rebels by nature. We are rebels at heart. We are rebels at heart. And when we bring children into this world, we bring rebels into this world. People who desperately need the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It's a sobering truth, beloved. 
rebels at heart. There's another sobering truth here, beginning in verse 11, and that is that no one will escape the judgment. No one will escape the judgment. Verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. Satan and his minions have been punished. They have been consigned to the lake of fire, verse 10. Now the Lord turns to judge wicked humanity. All those through the ages who have refused God will now have their day in court. All those people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ the throne, the great white throne, and they will be judged. Now notice in verse 11, John doesn't specifically identify who sits on this throne. I believe it was Christ, as I've just said. One of the reasons I believe that is from John chapter 5, and I'll turn you there just quickly. Page 1064, John chapter 5. Let me read you a couple of verses. Let's establish the judge here. John chapter 5, verse 22. John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Drop down to verse 27. And He gave Him, that is, the Father gave to Christ the Son authority to execute judgment because He he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear His voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Turn back to Revelation 20. There upon the great white throne. By the way, this word translated white could also easily be translated shining or brilliant. The idea being communicated here is not so much that the throne is white as opposed to green. The idea is that this throne is so brilliant in its glory that it shines forth The glory of Christ himself. In fact, the same word is used of Christ over in chapter 1 at the beginning of John's vision. He is the one who now is not just the, the humble carpenter. He is the glorified Lord of the universe. And he shines forth with such brilliance even that it says here, look, verse 11, earth and heaven flee from his presence. Earth and heaven flee from his presence. The very creation itself, stained with sin and misery, 
is vaporized. Vaporized. Destroyed. Peter tells us, burned with fire. Christ will then, chapter 21, establish a new heavens and a new earth. And if you come next week, we'll talk about that. But for now, in the presence of this shining one, this glorious one, this holy one, nothing can stand. By the way, it just occurs to me that since the lake of fire is spoken of as existing before the heavens and the earth are vaporized, and it is spoken of existing after the heavens and the earth are vaporized, that it appears to me that the lake of fire must lie outside this cosmos somewhere as you and I understand it. Where? I do not know. But it's not in the center of the earth. It's not in the center of the earth. I saw the dead, verse 12, the small and the great, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. The ancient prophets long foretold a judgment, a resurrection under judgment. The writer of the Hebrews picks it up in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where he says, It is appointed unto men to die once, and then judgment. Judgment. There is judgment coming. Judgment coming. So all the wicked, all those who have refused Christ through the ages, beginning with Cain, all the way forward, will now have their day in court. The great and the small. Do you see that? Verse 12. What he's doing there is he's saying that regardless of their social status, though that is the great, or their poverty or lack of social status, the small will stand. If the great will stand and the small will stand, then by extension, everyone who lives in between such status will be there. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the books are open, it says, and the charges are read. How ironic this is. How ironic. Humanity is going to receive just exactly what they have asked for. Just exactly what they've asked for. People want to be judged based on their own merits. Isn't that typical? They conceive of somehow a great cosmic scale. My bad deeds on one side, my good deeds on the other side. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, God will usher me in. People want to be judged based on who they are, what they've done, their perceived goodness. They're going to get what they want. God is going to give them what they want. He will evaluate them here before the bar of His justice, bringing every thought, every word, and every deed into divine evaluation. 
Nothing will be overlooked. The books were opened, it says, verse 12. The idea here is there is a record, beloved, a record of every single thought, every single deed, every single word. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Well, if it's in his heart, then no one knows but him. Wrong. God knows. God knows. And it's written down. It's written down. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render an account for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word written down. Written down. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul says there, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. There is an accounting someday. There is judgment someday. It is appointed unto man to die once and then comes judgment in which every thought, every word, every deed written down, you are called to account for. When people think that they want to stand before God and have Him judge them based on their life, they want Him to weigh the bad that they've done against the good that they've done. When they ask for that, they're going to get it. The problem is they miss understand the the basis of the judgment. They minimize God's standards. They drag His righteousness down to their level of unrighteousness. They negotiate His absolute holiness and make it corrupted and defiled like their own. They, in a word, make a God like unto themselves. And then they think they'll stand. Well, they fool themselves. How tragically they fool themselves. God's standard is perfection. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. The standard, beloved, is perfection. Perfection. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, Romans chapter 3 and in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is not your bad and your good. It is your bad and it is God's perfect standard of righteousness. And you cannot stand. You cannot stand. Notice verse 13. None will evade this evaluation, this bar of justice. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Reference to sea here, not sure. Perhaps a reference to Noah's flood. 
offer that to you as a possibility. The idea being that that all upon the earth were once taken away in a great flood so very, very long ago, and even they will not escape. Death and Hades will give up the dead which are in them. I think what he is communicating here is that death is speaking of their body and Hades is speaking of the place of their soul. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we die, we go immediately to the presence of Christ. For those who have refused him, both in the Old Testament and the New, they die, their soul goes immediately to a place of torment. It's called Sheol in the Old Testament. It's called Hades in the New. It is a place of torment. Both believer and unbeliever, these physical bodies go into the ground. But the disposition of our soul is so vastly different. I believe what John is communicating to us here when he says that death and Hades gave up what was in them. The idea is that there is a resurrection for the wicked coming someday. Their bodies will be raised from the ground out of the dead. Their souls will be extracted from Hades. It's like God turns Hades upside down and and shakes it until all of the wicked fall out. And he there combining body and soul stands them before his bar of justice. From that courtroom, sinner, body, and soul are judged, found guilty, and sentenced to eternal torment in the lake of fire. In that state of confirmed rebellion, and beloved, there's no repentance in eternity. There is no repentance in eternity. They will face God's punishment. Listen to the metaphors that are used to describe this place. Matthew 25, verse 41, it's called eternal fire. Matthew, excuse me, Mark 9, verse 43, it's called unquenchable fire. Matthew 25, verse 30, it's called outer darkness. Matthew 8, verse 12, it's called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 is called fiery hell, literally Gehenna, referring to the valley of Hinnom that was south of Jerusalem. It was the city garbage dump. It was where they threw their trash and their refuse and the, and the entrails that were left over from the sacrifices in the temple. And there they were burned. And the smoke and the stench rose up. Called in Mark 9, 48. A place where their worm does not die. What he's speaking of there is the idea the body is never consumed. The worm feeds upon it. Again, thinking back to the valley of Hinnom, where the worms would feed on the rotting flesh of the sacrificial animals. And he's saying that here in this place of eternal torment called the lake of fire, that their bodies will not be consumed. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And it will go on and on and on. We cannot conceive of such a place. The horror of such a place. 
We cannot conceive. The, the, the human language cannot communicate. No, oh, beloved. What a horrible place that God has established for those who persist in refusing His offer of grace. This past week has been a very difficult week in this country. There have been a number of tragedies. At the time I prepared this sermon, my mind was drawn to a situation in Ohio where a man was arrested and taken into custody to be charged as a serial killer. They found, last I looked, ten bodies in and around his home. What do we think about such evil? What do you think about people like that? They're going to go to the lake of fire, aren't they? They're going to go to the lake of fire. Such wickedness, such evil. What about Hitler? What about Mao Zedong? What about Stalin? What about Saddam Hussein? What will happen to these monsters? Well, they suffer the same fate as the little old lady down the street who never hurt anybody. Have you ever thought about that? Has anyone ever asked you that question? In fact, it's the very question that caused some to pull back from this whole concept that the Bible teaches here about the lake of fire and eternal punishment. People look at this and they say, well, yeah, Hitler would go to such a place and, and he would be worthy and deserving of such a place. The man was a monster. He slaughtered six million of God's chosen people and, and caused the death of many others. He deserves it. But my grandmother, my grandmother, she goes there too. How do we answer this? Well, the only way we can answer is we must submit our heart to the Word of God. We must let the Scripture speak. And then by faith, we embrace what the Word says. Let me remind you of just a few things. There is an answer for this. It begins with Romans chapter 1, actually. We were there once, many years ago. <laughs> and hang on, Lord willing, we're going back. According to Paul's presentation of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, all people are justly condemned because they refuse to worship the one true God who has made himself known to them, both through creation and through the internal witness of their own conscience. Their condemnation is that they have refused the knowledge that they do have. And thus stand, command, uh, stand condemned. Beyond that, the Bible says that God created the human race. And as the creator, he establishes the rules, beloved. And his standard is perfection. It is perfection. 
Beyond that, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we're told that all people sin by failing to live up to the divine law that is within their own conscience. Even those who never have the Scriptures, never know of Jesus Christ, still refuse to live up to the law that God has put within them, and they are guilty. The Bible's universal statement is that all of humanity is ruined in corruption and rebellion against God, that we are guilty of cosmic treason, and therefore, yes, we are justly deserving of eternal punishment. We are deserving. And by the way, if you don't think that's true, then Jesus is not much of a Savior. He's not much of a Savior. The greater we come to understand and meditate and contemplate what we deserve, the greater will grow our love and appreciation for what Christ has done for us. They are directly tied together. But what about those people who are extraordinarily wicked? Will somehow the fire of hell be hotter for them? I think the Bible indicates that it will. I think the Bible indicates that it will. Let me just quickly set this up for you. Breaking God's law is always wrong. Amen? But not all acts of law-breaking are equally serious. Even the Mosaic Code recognized that. There were certain violations called for one consequence, others called for something greater, up to and including capital punishment. Isn't that true? So within the, within the Mosaic law itself given by God, there, we see that there is a gradation of punishment depending on the offense. Beyond that, the Bible teaches that there is various rewards that come to believers based upon their faithfulness. I believe that that implies degrees of punishment that come to those based on their wickedness. Scripture indicates certain acts receive greater Condemnation, Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. Jesus said, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. Or Matthew chapter 11, verse 22. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Speaking to the cities of Galilee who had witnessed his miracles. Luke chapter 20, verse 47. Jesus said, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. I believe the Scripture clearly says that there are greater levels of condemnation that come at the judgment for the wicked. 
But listen to this. Every one of those statements that I read to you, every one of those statements that I read to you says that it is those who knew the truth and refused it. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? What I am saying to you is that based on the direct statements of Scripture, the greater condemnation comes not to those who have created, who have come guilty of this great moral evil through acts of wickedness and violence. It actually appears to come by the words of Christ to those who know the truth and turn it down. That means all of us right now are in a perilous position. You are in a perilous position. Because some among us, some of you, have come week after week. You have heard the word of God. You have agreed with the word of God, at least externally. And yet by your deeds, you deny its truth. You are in danger of the eternal fire of hell. You are headed to hell. Let us not think about Hitler and what he got. Let us contemplate what stands awaiting you if you refuse Christ. You will receive greater condemnation. Beloved, this passage is so sober, so serious, so gut-wrenching. I read it and think on it. I feel like I want to throw up. But there is a ray of hope here. There is a ray of hope, and the ray of hope is in verse 15. Verse 15, God's grace is our only hope. God's grace is our only hope. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What John is saying here is that before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, there are no mistakes, no miscarriages of justice. So thorough, so penetrating is the judgment of God that none will escape unless God himself intervenes to rescue them. When the verdict has been rendered, when their deeds, their thoughts, their words have been evaluated and they have been justly condemned, A search will be made of the record book called the book of life. If their name perchance might be there. For if it is, it is their only hope. But it says that their name is not there. 
and they are thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life. God's registry of the redeemed. The heavenly record book written from the foundation of the world. It contains the names of the residents of the heavenly Jerusalem. That is the followers of God. It is only by God's grace that one's name is found written in this book. And it is only if one's name is found written in this book that, they, that one can evade the great white throne. Oh, beloved, don't rejoice in what God is doing through you. Rejoice that your names are found written in the Lamb's book of life. All who call out to God in this life. All who beg Him for His mercy. All who recognize their sin and call out to Him to save them. All who trust themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and whose lives are changed to reflect the reality of that faith. Their names are written in the book of life and they will escape this judgment. And all those that aren't will not. Our hope is the grace of God and nothing else. Let this truth penetrate your heart right now. If your name is written in the book, then may joy flood your soul as you recognize what God has saved you from. And if your name is not, oh, beloved, if your name is not, throw yourself on the mercy of God right now and beg Him to save you. Do not parade before Him your virtues. Do not commend yourself to Him. Confess the reality of the wickedness of your own soul and cry out to God to save you. For it is your only hope. It is your only hope. You can do that right now. Right where you are. Close your eyes and talk to God. Do not leave today like a fool, tempting your Creator. Who would have thought? Who would have thought last Thursday, standing in line? on a military fort in Colleen, Texas, that it would be the last day of their life. Beloved, none of us know. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Call out to Christ 
now. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, the fierceness of your judgment terrifies our souls. The lake of fire and brimstone, the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place where the worm continues to eat and never is satisfied. Deliver us. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, who upon that cross consumed the fires of hell for his people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. Tormented. For we who deserve it. O Lord, it is by your grace and your grace alone. It is our only hope. Let us cling fast to this grace. Let us call out to you. Let us believe your gospel. And let it comfort our souls. O Lord, be merciful today to those in our midst who stand on the precipice of hell, the very ground unstable under their feet. O Lord, rescue them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.